Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Dr. Tim Black. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's pray. Father, we're here this morning hungry for you. And I ask, Lord, that as we dig into your word together, that your spirit will guide us, that you'll help us to see some things from John's life, Lord, that can, we can use as a model for places that you're going to call us into as we go forward from this year. We love you and we worship you this morning and ask that you would uh, use this time to grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a bit of a road map of where we're going this morning. Um, and this is just going to come out of the scriptures that we're working through. God sent a man. His name was John. Secondly, John understood who he was and he knew his purpose. Thirdly, he came to bear witness about the light. And then his goal, fourthly, was that all might believe. So, God sent a man named John. Why introduce John here? So if you look at how this passage unfolds, John, verse, John 1 verse 5 talks about the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. And then verse 9 goes on to talk about the light coming into the world. Verses 6 to 8 seem like an interruption, right? Why not first introduce Jesus all the way and then introduce John the Baptist? Well, we don't know specifically what John the Apostle was thinking when he wrote this text under God's inspiration, but let's assume there was a purpose in breaking up the narrative of the story. And I want to pose what I think might be the reason he's doing that. I think he breaks up the flow because he wants us to understand that it's important that the arrival of God's Son is heralded by witness. God's way of heralding the light is by human witnesses, and John is just one example of what this can look like. It didn't have to be this way, right? God could cause the light of Christ to spread in some other way. He could have done it with angels, a big choir in the sky. He could have done it with a candlelight service like we enjoyed last week. He could have written the gospel in the sky with big puffy clouds, white letters made out of whatever, right? He could have caused the wind to talk. But instead, God chose to call and send human beings as witness to the light. There was a man, a human being, sent from God, whose name was John. This general principle is even more clear because John was sent to testify to the light while the light was there. As soon as the light was in the world, as soon as Jesus came, God prepared and sent a human right alongside our Savior. Jesus didn't need John the Baptist to make him known. He could have managed it himself. He was and is the light of the world. But God's wisdom dictates that his son should be heralded, announced, and proclaimed by people that he chooses and sends. This is the way that God 
gets the word out about his son. This means that there are some implications for us today from this passage. The first one is be alert to the call of God in your life. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 tells us that this is true. And we know this passage, right? Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go. This is the calling for every one of us. But second, the implication is that you should be ready and open to hear the testimony of others that are speaking to you. God means to communicate to you not just through your private Bible studies and readings, but also through other people that he'll send. He means to communicate through preaching and through your church family and through godly parents. We should be aware that it is God's way of communicating with those that he calls and sends. Otherwise, why send them if he, if he has nothing to say through them? Be ready and open to God's call on your life. Be ready and open to recognize the word of God to you when it comes from others that God has sent to you. Finally, be aware that there are things for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created by God to do good works that are pre-prepared for us to do. None of us has opted out of this great mission so that we can say, my name wasn't on that call, right? All of us are called into this. We're called to be the light of the world, and we're called to go and to reach the nations. All are called to be witnesses to the light. Acts 1.8 and 1 Peter 2.9 are clear. But God still calls some of us in a special way and for special tasks. It may be a vocational sending into full-time ministry. It may be single or periodic sending for some special mission, either overseas or across the street. But it's God's way to speak to a person and send that person to testify to the light. Be ready and open to hear the call of God in your life and accept that commission. Don't assume that what you're doing now is your only mission. Don't assume that you're too old or too young to receive a call. Now, second point is John understood who he was and he knew his his, who he was, uh, his purpose. Okay? He knew he wasn't Elijah. He knew he wasn't the prophet. And there was some talk uh, amongst the Jews at this time about this prophet that was to come. He knew he wasn't that guy. Who are you? You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Which mold can we craft you into? How can we define you? And there are ways that we are defined, right? Culture will define us. Our society will define us. Our friends will define us. The world will do its best to define you and force you into a role that cares very little about you or what you're created and called to do. We can be easily manipulated into chasing after money or power 
or fame when our loving Father has a plan for us. There's a framework that flows from your birth. You're made in the image of God with purpose and value. This goes for every one of us here this morning and every person that's ever existed. God's imprint is on your life. You are valuable. You have been carefully crafted by the great creator of the universe. You're not a mistake regardless of the circumstances of your birth or your family. God intentionally and personally crafted you into being. Will you trust him to show the purposes he has for your life? Will you let him lead you and guide you? Will you turn your life over to him? But how do you become who you were made to be? First, give yourself to the Word of God. Immerse yourself in God's assessment of you in the world so that you see things through His eyes. If you don't believe there's a loving Creator who loves you and pursues you, you're going to have very different ideas about life and purpose. You're on your own in that worldview. If you think that all we're here is by the random collision of molecules in some kind of primordial soup, then there is no purpose or meaning. But you also have to know that deep down inside that cannot be true. Too much is glorious all around us. Secondly, get a realistic view of yourself and of your gifts and your weaknesses and let others help you by participating in the body of Christ and having them comment on the things that they see in your life. We need to do this as a church community, out of our love for each other and the desire for each one in our congregation to flourish, both as a church community and as individuals. Third, look at the situation in the world around us, either in our immediate vicinity, which would be our city, or in some distant place, and see how God burdens you for his creation. What is he placing on your heart? What vision stirs you or keeps you up at night? It is his mission, and he's created a role from which you can exercise your unique gifts. I believe that when these three things happen, saturation with the Bible, a true understanding of yourself, and a clear vision of the needs of the world, and you begin to stir them together and season them with prayer and calling out to God, what will emerge is an aroma of the clear calling of God in your life. You'll begin to see where God is leading and how your gifts can be sown into the work of his kingdom. Now, the third point is we want to bear witness about the light. John came for a testimony to bear witness about the light in verse 7. A witness is a person who has seen or experienced something, right? If you witness something, you've seen it. Um, you can bear witness about it. God had spoken to John in the wilderness about the coming of the Messiah, and his meeting with Jesus at Jesus' baptism gave him the experience he needed to be a bona fide witness. Verses 33 and 34 say, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So God had spoken to John about the one who was coming. 
And then he gave him a sign to let him know that Jesus was the one. From then on, John bore his testimony to Jesus faithfully until he was put to death for his witness. On August 30, 1744, Jonathan Edwards preached an ordination sermon for Robert Abercrombie and took as his text, John 5.35, where Jesus says of John's witness, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Edwards developed a point that a faithful witness to the gospel shines and burns. That is, there is the light of truth and burning zeal. John the Baptist had them both, and in this he is a really great example for us. So first, let's look at the light of truth. John sees various things as we see in this scripture. First, he sees that Jesus is Lord. He identifies himself as a voice crying in the wilderness in John 1.23. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is an amazing thing because in John 40 verse 3, the Lord was referenced to God himself. So John is stating that Jesus is God. In John 1.27, Jesus is great and John is not worthy. He's not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. Thirdly, in John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He saw Jesus and he calls this out. John probably discovered this while he was meditating on the Old Testament scriptures. Probably Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7. Fourthly, in John 1.33, Jesus is the one who's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. John says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Spirit. He's the source of the Spirit. And then fifthly, John 1.34, Jesus is the Son of God. John testifies, I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. These are just five things that we can find in this passage where, Jesus, where John is claiming that Jesus has these characteristics. And the second thing, so there's not only this light of truth that we find in the passage, but there's this burning zeal. Frederick Nietzsche chastised the church for its lack of passion with these sobering words. They would have to sing better songs for me to learn to have faith in their Redeemer. And his disciples would have to look more redeemed. John's example would have caught Nietzsche's attention, and there are a few things from John's life that can make our testimony more credible as well. First, there was a simplicity in John's life. He'd lived in the wilderness for years. He dressed in simple leather clothes. Remember, camel's hair. He had a fistful of locusts that he sprinkled honey over, and he ate that as his meal. He was an unusual guy, but he lived a simple life. It stood over against the luxuries of his day. This gave a tremendous power to his prophetic message when he said to the, multiples, the multitudes, he who has two coats, let him share with those who have none. Secondly, John had a humility. His role was tragic in a way. He was the last prophet to serve before the Lord's advent, and he was killed while the Christian movement that he served was just getting started. 
But John took this role without any resentment whatsoever. He said in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And when John's disciples complained that Jesus was stealing the show, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's testimony was burning with authenticity because he was truly a humble man. But John also had courage. John held to his message of righteousness to the end, and it cost him his life. We could think of many reasons why it would not be wise to cry out and accuse the king of being unfaithful. That doesn't make sense. But John acted on principle, not on prudence. And he called what he saw straightly. Jesus said, there wasn't a man born of woman that's greater than John. His testimony burned with reality just because he was this man of incredible courage. So John modeled a role for us faithfully to engage our culture. What does this look like for us as a church? Michael Goheen writes, The church, if it is to offer a faithful witness to the gospel, must be seen as a community that gives itself for the sake of the other, a community that is deeply involved in the needs and concerns of its neighbor. What will that look like for us as we move from our current space here in Hunter College to our new temporary home on West 86th Street? Will our new neighbors be glad we've come because of the ways that we love and we serve them? Will they, be, will they want us around because of the aroma of Christ through our presence? Will they miss us when we move back into our property at 123 West 57th? How will we serve this new community so that they'll miss us when we're gone? Or want to follow us to our new home on West 57th? These are important questions for us to consider as we become part of a new community in January. We're not in a holding pattern as a congregation. We're on mission. So whether we're in this building or another building or in our home on West 57th Street, we're a church on mission. It's not waiting. We're moving. So let's review and just to make sure that you're awake and following with me this morning, the first step in our text was that God sent a man named John. It's God's way to spread light through using people. Second step is that John himself understood who he was and how he fit into God's plan. And the third is that John was to be a witness to the light. The way God uses people to spread the light is by their testimony. And John was a burning light for the gospel, burning with zeal and shining with the light of truth. The goal, number four, that all would believe. Verse 7, John came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. Notice through him, not on him. The aim of his testimony was that we believe in Jesus John's whole life was pointed to the truth and the worth of the one who was to come after him, Jesus. God sent him so that we would believe. 
John 1, verses 9 to 13. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will of man, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you believe in Jesus? I don't mean do you simply believe that he was a good man and came and died and left us so many years ago. But have you anchored your life to these truths? Can those around you tell you're a follower of Jesus by the way you live, by the way that you love? What are the steps that we need to take to make this a reality? This morning, it might be that in the midst of this Advent season, as we think around the return of Christ, our King, that God is stirring something. And if you haven't put your faith, anchored your life into Christ, I would urge you to do that today. And just speak to me or Pastor Abraham or one of the elders, deacons. We'd be happy to show you how to do that. Matthew 5 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's the fourth stanza of A Christmas Carol that I would like to read to you. The theology is just packed, as you see in many Christmas carols. Um, this one's written by Charles Wesley. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bring us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And you probably know the next verse, next line. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen. Let's pray. We worship you, Father. Thank you for drawing us together this morning as your people. And we pray, Lord, that as we're finishing this year and we're looking forward to the return of Christ, that you would help us in our move from this place to another place, to go as ambassadors for you. God, we are on mission, regardless of where the building is. And we ask that you use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.